Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. I'm Iris, and you're listening to Queerania on 3CR Community Radio. Thanks to Encyclopedia for the for the last hour. Um, I'm joined in the studio today with Jane Green. How are you, Jane? I'm fantastic, actually. Um, Jane is from Vixen Collective in Victoria, and in the second half of the show, we're going to be listening to an interview um, featuring Jules Kim, um, who's the CEO of Sky and Alliance, talking about the injustice of CJ Palmer's incarceration. Um, but first, I'd like to give an acknowledgement that we're broadcasting over the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples. Um, this land um, is still... a land of genocide and ongoing colonization. Um, I'd like to pay my respects to Indigenous elders past, present and future, and I'd like to acknowledge any Indigenous listeners. Um, we saw yesterday was Sorry Day, which was 20 years since the Bring Them Home report. The year after that, um, this sort of, this day sort of became a thing that was, um, that was recognised, um, and that report came after decades of activism against violent removals of, of Aboriginal children in Australia. Um, and I'd just like to draw listeners' attention to the Grandmother Against Removals groups, with, which came to Canberra yesterday, and were doing doing a lot of organising against like what, the record levels of Indigenous child removal that we're seeing right now. Um, yeah, so for the first part of this show, um, I'm talking to Jane from Vixen. Um, so first, Jane, what is Vixen? Um, Vixen Collective is Victoria's peer-only sex worker organisation, and what that means is we're an organisation run by and for sex workers, and everyone involved is either a current or former sex worker here in Victoria. And it's a very big distinction between peer sex worker organisations and other organisations that talk about sex work because for sex workers we want to be represented by organisations that truly represent us and speak about our own lives and work and often there's people that speak over the top of us and take up space where our voices should be heard. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah, in terms of voices speaking over sex workers, we saw the adoption of the Nordic model at the Liberal State Council recently at the same conference, a number of very conservative forces formed a bloc that seems quite dangerous. But we've also seen, just in the last week or so, that the Liberal opposition leader, Matthew Guy, has said they have no plans to introduce the Nordic model. Um, so first, I'd like you to talk and explain to listeners what is the Nordic and Swedish model and how it negatively affects sex workers and if we can trust the Liberal Party on this. Well, uh, the Liberal Party passed Motion 18 to support the Nordic model at their state council and obviously that was deeply concerning to members of our community because the so-called Nordic model, because it's not actually in place in all Nordic countries, um, was originally brought in in 1999 in Sweden and it's had tremendous impact on sex workers' health and safety and rights in that country and in other countries where it's been introduced. And there was a report recently on the impact of the Nordic model on sex workers in France. And you see things like 63% of sex workers experiencing a deterioration of their living conditions, 78% of sex workers experiencing a loss of income, and 42% of sex workers um, being more exposed to violence. So the impacts it have on, has on our community are really severe. And criminalising any part of our work criminalises sex workers, and that's the impact of the Nordic model. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, was, yeah. So, and this really brings us to another proponent of the Nordic model. Um, so we've seen the Greens candidate for the Victorian state seats of Richmond for the third time is Kathleen Maltzand. 
um, who is the founder of Project Respect, which is um, a notorious sort of organization which includes supporting policies that destroy sex worker working conditions, such as the Nordic model. Um, and every year she has, she has run and won pre-selection in the Greens, and she's faced active opposition by sex workers and their supporters. Um, could you tell our, tell listeners about the campaign against um, Kathleen Maltzen? Um Yeah, absolutely. Look, there's a more than 20-year history of protesting Kathleen Maltzen's views and protesting the anti-sex work organisation Project Respect. Um, and organisations that oppose sex worker rights and people that oppose sex worker rights, like Kathleen Maltzen, they're a massive contributing factor to the Liberal Party taking on and supporting the Nordic model. And it's really in contrast to the Victorian Greens' own stated policy, which actually supports the decriminalisation of sex work. And so sex workers have been calling on the Victorian Greens to stand by their own policy and to run a candidate that supports human rights for all people, including sex workers. And I think it's really telling that Matthew Guy, the leader of the Liberal Party in Victorian Parliament, came out and stated very clearly that they're not going to take up support for the Nordic model in the parliamentary party for the Liberals. And yet the Victorian Greens have had sex workers protesting literally for years and years and years, asking them to run a candidate that actually supports us, and they're not listening. And the fact that the Liberals seem to be listening more is deeply concerning the party with the Greens' politics. Mm, yeah, it is so concerning. Um, yeah, in terms of more recent actions, there's been a number of successful, I guess, actions in bringing it, drawing attention to this issue, um, s such as one at a talk Walton was involved in at the New International Bookshop, um, another at a Greens like Greens 3 election sort of combined sort of campaign launch and another against a sort of $120 a head canapes and cocktails fundraiser which is also held at Handsome and Her which is a venue um, I haven't personally been to but um, I know like a trans friend of mine has had concerns about their policy in terms of um, how it polices gender and um, yeah, so there's a lot of issues with that venue that, yeah. But in terms of where I'm getting to, um, I wonder if you could talk t to us some more about some of the actions that have been happen happening recently. Yeah, absolutely. Look, sex workers and supporters of our human rights have been out in force protesting um, and calling on the Greens directly to disendorse Kathleen Maltzen. Um There's actually a petition online um, that has more than, I think, 1,500 signatures at this point, calling on the Greens to do that. And we've been out, um, actually we're out yesterday, um, protesting the uh, fundraising event for Kathleen Maltzen, which was termed a feminist salon, um, with a door price of $120. Sex workers held their own feminist salon outside, which didn't cost anything. We gave out free fairy bread and asked people to support our rights. And I think if you're positioning yourself as a feminist and your feminism doesn't include sex workers um, and doesn't include the idea that human rights apply to all people, then there's a problem with your feminism and that's what we were there to raise and make visible. Hmm. Yeah, so we see this interesting thing with Maltzen where um, there was a statement she put out recently where she, against, in, in the face of all this community pressure from sex workers, um, she has put out a statement saying she wouldn't vote for the Nordic model with the Liberals, but in that statement she didn't say she doesn't support it. Um, and she also, the other thing she does is she brands herself as LGBTIQ friendly, which is, um, it's interesting to note this, and I'd like to ask you, what are the problems with her branding as LGBTIQ friendly? Um, there's massive problems with it. Research in Australia shows that more than 60% of sex workers identify as LGBTIQ. So there's a real crossover between our communities. And the idea that someone could claim to be for the rights of LGBTIQ people while essentially throwing sex workers under the bus, it's incredibly troubling. Uh, sex workers at the protest last night 
uh, spoke briefly with Kathleen Moulton because she did come outside at one point and raised the issue that she said she will vote in compliance with Victorian Greens policy but hadn't been direct about her own personal support for the Nordic model. And she stated to about a dozen of us that were there that she hasn't abandoned the Nordic model and that she, quote, believes there's real strength in it. So this idea that she's going to be a safe candidate or someone that's going to comply with Green's policy is really dangerous. She's someone who still holds mm. very strong toxic views towards our community and will raise those views in Parliament. Mm. Yeah. I sp Another thing um, in terms of the Greens is in Victoria, I suppose, I suppose it's, it's the Greens' sort of stronghold and yet... Um, it's only in South Australia that we've seen the Greens raise a decriminalisation bill. Could you tell us about that? Um, look, the South Australian Greens, um, in particular Tammy Franks, has raised the um, a bill for decriminalisation and it's gone up and been voted on, I think, three times now and is going up for a fourth. And obviously that needs to pass. South Australia is the last place in the country that has full criminalisation of sex work. Um, and that's a really bad situation for sex workers to be in, uh, particularly in terms of recognising our rights, our labour rights and our ability, if something does go wrong in our work, if we are assaulted um, or put in danger, our ability to raise that with the police and to access justice through the courts. And it cuts that off unless our work is treated like other work. Mm. Yeah. So in terms of Victoria, where we are in terms of how sex work is treated by the state and law? Um, in Victoria, we work under a licensing system, and the easiest way to describe that for people is criminalisation, like we have in South Australia, means that sex work is illegal, you're not meant to do it, but obviously it still occurs, your rights are just severely compromised. Decriminalisation, which is what sex workers across the world call for, means that there's a removal of the criminal laws applying to sex work, so sex work can be regulated like other work. Now here in Victoria we have a licensing model and that means that some but not all of the criminal laws have been removed. But over the top of that there's this massive bureaucratic framework that tells us how, when, where and with who we can work. And it's so complex that sex workers can breach the law just because they don't understand the law well enough. But it also has the same effects that criminalisation does. It puts barriers in place with us accessing the police with accessing our own peer organisations and outreach services and compromises our health and safety. Mm. Yeah, so um, in one party we haven't touched on yet is the Labour Party. Um, the Labour Party are in power in Victoria at the moment and I'm wondering if you know where they are at on decriminalisation of sex work in right. this state. Actually, that's why I said I was fantastic when you asked me uh, how I was this morning. Um, well, this afternoon, uh, the Victorian Labor Party have actually passed an amendment to their state platform regarding sex work, and that was passed yesterday at their state conference. And it is a recommendation to their law reform committee to consider decriminalisation of all forms of sex work in Victoria, as per other systems recognised internationally by human rights organisations. So it's a really strong statement. Um, that supports the human rights of members of our community. And it means now that we have three parties in Victoria that support the decriminalisation of sex work, and that's Victorian Labor most recently, um, officially the Victorian Greens, although obviously we prefer they weren't running an anti-sex work candidate, and also the Reason Party. Mm, yeah, and I suppose that has come from a lot of organising. That's come from a lot of, like, sweat and tears and um, blood, I guess, as well. Um, yeah, so, like, congratulations to get that passed yesterday. Um, I suppose another thing that's affecting sex workers that we've heard a lot has come more inter internationally in terms of the SESTA-Foster legislation to stop enabling Sex Traffickers Act and allow states and victims to fight online Sex Trafficking Act in the US, and that's affected a lot of online platforms. Um, could you talk about how those acts have negatively affected working conditions in Victoria? Absolutely. Well, Sister and Foster has been passed in the US, and ostensibly it's to fight sex trafficking, um, but actually it has negative impacts on the ability of law enforcement to detect cases of trafficking. But for sex workers, critically, 
it affects sex workers' ability to advertise online and advertising avenues on online mediums have basically been shut down in America, so it's had a tremendous impact on sex workers over there. But because so many advertising platforms are um, international these days, those changes have affected sex workers in Victoria and around Australia with the closure of things like Backpage and Cracker and other online mechanisms, particularly the lower cost advertising avenues for sex workers. And that's had a tremendous impact. Mm. Yeah, it's had a massive impact worldwide. Um, um, another question, how can listeners support um, the campaigns that are being run in Victoria? Um, yeah. Um, well, they can absolutely um, follow Vixen on social media, follow our website. We've got information on all our active campaigns online. Um, it's important to note that Victoria is the only state or territory in Australia that doesn't have a funded peer sex worker organisation. So Vixen is a completely voluntary and unfunded organisation that's been working over 13 years um, to raise issues relating to sex workers' lives and work and to promote um, other people and other organisations supporting our human rights. So what people can do is lift up the voices of sex workers and provide space for us to speak out about the issues that are relevant to us and not speak over the top of us. And I think that's critical for any marginalised community. Mm, yeah, that, that's so important. Um, one last question I have. Could you tell listeners about the radical history of International Whores Day, which is coming up next Saturday on May 2nd? Uh, June 2nd. I mean, June 2nd. I wrote the wrong month. Um, it's all right. I've, I feel like the last five weeks have, have sort of made my head not know what date it is. Um, International um, Whores Day or International Sex Workers Day is a time when sex workers come together to call for our human rights across the world. Um, we will be having um, a, an event here in Victoria um, that has a no-cost entry fee, keeping in tone with... Um, our organisation's um, beliefs and certainly I think that's a good contrast to the events that have been held by the Victorian Greens that have had a high cost entry fee and excluded members of our community. Mm, yeah, accessibility is so important. Um, is there anything else you'd like to raise? Um, just that the critical thing in supporting the rights of any marginalised community is listening to that community directly. Um, and sex workers are in no way the only community that is treated this way, um, and particularly by government in the formation of laws and policy about our lives, we are the relevant people to consult. And I will say that in terms of Victorian Labor making this change to their policy, that's come from actually talking to sex workers, and that's the critical thing that needs to happen. Mm, yeah, so important. Thanks for your time, Jane. Thank uh, you for having me. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. Radiothon is coming up, so we need your donations and you can check out the website on how to donate next few weeks you're going to be hearing a lot about Radiothon and we need to raise I think $250,000 and we rely on your support so get on to the links and donate to us and if you'd like to shout out to Querying the Air that'd be great because we have quite a lot of funds to raise and we need to get to our target or we might not be on air anymore. Um, yep yeah, so here's the interview I did with Jules Kim coming up. I'm joined in the studio with Jules Kim, CEO of Scarlet Alliance, um, or also known as the Australian Sex Workers Association, which advocates for justice and self-determination for sex workers. And it's made up by a range of sex worker organisations, projects, and individual sex workers in Australia. Um, and I'm talking to Jules about CJ Palmer and some background for listeners, after being arrested in 2016, CJ Palmer contested court allegations of grievous bodily harm in relation to allegedly transmitting HIV to an ex-partner. 
She lost her case at the start of the year in the Perth District Court, sentenced to six years in a men's prison um, despite being a trans woman. Um, And by that time in January, she had already been incarcerated as a trans woman in a inverted commas male prison for nine months in isolation in the crisis care unit. Um, So what's what's been happening in the last few months for CJ? Um, So CJ's uh, now uh, been moved um, to a uh, different unit, um, which is sort of like, I suppose, the protective um, unit. Um, So it's good in the sense that she's uh, no longer in solitary, so she's she's, um, in a unit with other people, but it's it's kind of, you know... uh, the protective wing, so and, and it is still in the maximum security male prison, which is very problematic. Um, we had applied um, that just recently was a appeal to try and get her into um, a lesser security um, prison, and that was um, refused, unfortunately. Um, so uh, we we also um, have an appeal of a sentence coming up, and um, that has been accepted. Um, so uh, we will be um, appealing her incredibly harsh sentence, which obviously is being compounded by the fact that she is a uh, trans woman being held in a maximum security men's prison. Mm, yeah, it's like it's such a gross injustice. Mm, and absolutely. Yeah, um, I guess we saw all around like the case being covered. We saw the mainstream media showed itself to be completely untrustworthy in reporting on the case. And I was wondering if you could talk about the damaging media images, tropes, and plain wrong information surrounding the case, and particularly relating to HIV-positive people, sex workers, and trans women. Mm, absolutely. You know, and, and, and I think that this was always our concern from the start. Um, as we know, HIV shouldn't be in the criminal law anyway. Um, and from the start, you know, uh, CJ is a woman of colour. She's a trans woman of colour who, who is openly a sex worker and a drug user. And um, so, you know, it, 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 it was very much the case um, that we knew it was going to be a real challenge for her to get a fair trial, um, given just simply by the fact of who she, who she is. Um, and um, unfortunately our um, suspicions played out and even things like in the courts where um, it was made very very clear that they'd had this um, her and uh, the um, complainant um, had uh, a a non-commercial relationship Um, but you know and the the media were there every day um, at 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 the trial they turned up every day they were taking notes and they heard very clearly the the court's evidence um, you know, where everyone agreed that they had a non-commercial relationship. But I think it's this kind of idea that if you're a sex worker, then, you know, it's impossible to have a personal relationship because they continue to report about their relationship as a sex worker and client mm. and continue to portray him as a client. Um, and again, as well, like, you know, obviously... CJ is a whole person, but, you know, like her identity became very much reduced to transgender sex worker, you know, and uh, that was just repeatedly the headline um, in the media. And, um, you know, even with the court reporting, it was, uh, I was there on the trial, uh, during the trial, and um, there there was nothing um, that, there was a lot of evidence that came out that would, you know, that was kind of more sympathetic to CJ's case, but they just pretty much just reported things that kind of reaffirmed their ideas and preconceptions about the case and ideas around her guilt. And so, um, and a lot of the other evidence that came up, um, it, it seems like that they were just really not interested in. Mm, yeah, that that's like really telling, yeah, and how... All that systemic bias in terms of like these systemic oppression um, that are playing out in this case, and yeah, I guess yeah. Um, what does this like say about HIV criminalization in the courts? It, like, does it say that 
um, you have to be a particular marginalized person um, um, to probably be found to be found guilty in these laws. Is it because there's no way to prove it otherwise? Is that what it seems to be suggesting? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that is um, essentially um, a problem with with these laws, like because it does come down to this idea of perceived credibility of um, of the people in the case, you know, and, and the perceptions that people um, that the jury and and the, the judge kind of form about um, the people involved in the case, and um, you know, it, I think that you know people that have these sort of more mainstream. Um, images of acceptability and this has been kind of borne out numerous times in in criminal cases where we do know that um, people of color are in, you know um, end up getting much more severe sentences um, and are already kind of um, disproportionately affected by the criminal justice system and um, particularly in, in um, cases that do come down to this kind of you know uh, one person's account over another's you know, um, does um, and and there, there's no, there there is no um, external evidence. So it's uh, it just kind of pretty much comes down to, you know, these stereotypes. And I can tell you, a lot of the the prosecution's case was about, you know, uh, bringing bringing out these kind of tired stereotypes to um, uh, to kind of you know uh, stereotypes around the credibility of somebody who's a sex worker and a drug user, and, um, you know, uh, which was um, incredibly disappointing, you know. Um, and uh, it's it really, you know, even just the idea of um, having um, uh, what is um, a chronic manageable illness mm. in the criminal justice system is um, incredibly, um, dis, you know, um, antiquated and... Um, it, it just it, it doesn't make sense to to be um, charging um, somebody for um, transmission of HIV um, in a criminal justice case, and it's also had this really um, unfortunate impact too because of the way that it's been reported. That um, it sends this kind of message almost like that it's like criminal to be a sex worker or criminal mm. to be living with HIV and if you're a person living with HIV then you know um, it's criminal for you to be a sex worker and it's not you know um, it's actually you know it's ludicrous to think that somebody living with HIV could could can't have sex you know and certainly there's no reason why somebody living with HIV couldn't safely and uh, be a sex worker um, this, uh, but it's kind of, you know, I think that the problem with these, these sorts of trials and this irresponsible reporting is it really does um, instill fear in people. Um, and it, it, it does kind of um, instill fear in people about knowing their status and, you know, um, or even like, you know, talking about their status or, you know, um, certainly like being um, talking about being a sex worker or, and, um, you know, uh, I think that it is uh, really problematic um, in, in a lot of ways and it has had long-standing um, impacts. And I do know uh, when there was a similar case in the ACT, uh, we had um, a male sex worker and at the time um, the numbers of um, sex workers getting tested um, at, the, at the clinic then just like, you know, um, reduced down to like from 30 a week to two a week um, at the time in the ACT. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, we saw similarly um, uh, uh, impacts happening with um, transgender sex workers saying trans sex workers basically being fearful um, to go and get tested because they, did, they were um, scared that they would be exposed to the same, you know, media circus mm -hmm. if... if um, if they were found to be HIV positive. Mm, yeah, on that point, um, could you talk about how criminalising HIV increases rates of HIV transmission? Because I think mm -hmm. we're getting to that. Um. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, I think it, it has been um, well established that punitive laws around HIV are actually really counterproductive. I think that... Um, Sometimes in, you know, uh, a public consciousness, they think that 
it's good to criminalise HIV and you should have laws around HIV and testing and and that this is the best way to uh, manage, um, you know, transmission. But in fact, we know that it actually has the exact opposite impact. And there's a lot of research that supports that and, and um, um, a lot of evidence that's supported by the World Health Organization and by the United Nations and the UNAIDS that supports that actually that they have this reverse effect by making people fearful about knowing their status, making pe- people fearful about getting tested. Um, and, uh, you know, and certainly if, you know, very fearful about accessing services or, um, you know, or reaching out to access services because they become really concerned that they will then be um, persecuted, rightfully concerned that they'll be prosecuted or persecuted um, as, as a consequence. Um, and, you know, um, the reverse is that we know that um, this kind of public health approach to HIV has been really successful and it results in high rates of testing and yeah. results in good access to services. And, you know, I think that the evidence is, is, is very clear now that um, that uh, people with HIV, um, uh, you know, um, that have undetectable viral load are are at no risk of um, transmitting uh, the virus. So, you know, given um, what we know about transmission and about um, HIV, there there is no reason, absolutely no reason, why those laws should be in the criminal code in this day and age. Unfortunately, in um, Victoria as well, we, we do still have laws prohibiting uh, a sex worker living with HIV from um, working, mm. which is uh, fortunately in um, ACT where um, there were laws that basically said that you couldn't be or see a sex worker. We saw um, very recently uh, there's been a bill to repeal um, that, that section of the um, Sex Work Act, which is fantastic. Um, so now that that's been repealed in the ACT, we um, have uh, Victoria and Queensland as two states um, that still explicitly criminalise mm. sex workers living with HIV. Mm. Yeah, it was yeah it was such a um, like a disgusting political moment when Victoria um, got rid of a bunch of HIV related criminalisation stuff, but threw sex workers under the bus um, mm. a few years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what, in terms of this case, what do you think this says about where things are at in terms of struggles for the decriminalisation of sex work and HIV? Mm. Look, there is, um, uh, you know, a, a movement to um, repeal that law in Victoria, and have been um, working with um, uh, some of the, um, the, you know, like uh, Living Positive Victoria and um, Vixen Collective um, to um, to uh, lobby to get those. Um, laws repealed um, in Victoria. But yeah, look, you know, I think we are um, still a long way off. I think even if uh, people understand um, the fact that, you know, HIV is is now a manageable illness, that, um, you know, that there is no transmission risk if somebody's undetectable and um, even if they understand that the, the rights of person living with HIV, it's almost like as soon as that person is a sex worker, that goes out, gets thrown out the window. Um, it's, um, it, you know, I think it's, it's like, there's almost like this confusion because the act of sex is exactly the same. So why there's this perception that somehow when there's money exchanged that the risk is increased, I'm not sure, you know, but there, there does seem to be an absolute disconnect in people's brains about about that you know um so there is still a, a lot of kind of backward thinking when it comes to um sex work and sex work and hiv so hopefully um you know this what we've seen happening um in happening in the act is a step in the positive direction mm. but you know i mean it doesn't it's um when, when you think as well um it's the last um hiv case um was in WA was um, um, some years back, many years back, and um, 
the case did involve uh, a minor and uh, it came up during the sentencing where, um, you know, uh, it, it was kind of... It was expected that CJ would get less of a sentence because, mm. you know, obviously there were two consenting adults, um, but she actually got a much higher sentence. Mm. So, you know, and looking at... Um, uh, and, you know, it's, it's a bit of a, 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 a kind of odd argument because obviously any sentence is, is inappropriate. But even looking at the scale of all the other sentences for HIV, um, it's like CJ's was incredibly high, even by that standard. Mm. And uh, so, you know, and uh, it did come up a number of times in the um, judge's statements that, you know, it was imagined that her offending was somehow more serious because she was a sex worker, mm. even though that had absolutely nothing to do with the case because the, the complainant was, wasn't a client, you know, and it had nothing to do with the, the charge for transmission, yet it did, um, it did come up it, it, uh, and it was a factor in why her sentence was um, more extreme. Mm, so yeah. this is going to be, you know, part of the basis of, you know, um, the appeal um, because it is an absolutely excessive um, sentence um, and also completely out of step with um, other sentences, um, uh, you know, other similar offences and sentences. So hopefully um, that will have some um, success um, with the appeal later later this year. Yeah, definitely hope. Um, moving back to C- CJ, um, and I'm just, yeah, this case to me seems to highlight how prisons amplify white supremacy, homophobia, and a gender binary, and violence within those systems. And I'm wondering if you could talk to the conditions she- she's had to endure in prison mm. and the things that have been denied to her without significant advocacy. Absolutely. You know, and it, you, you're absolutely right. And I think this is why it is so important to maintain that uh, attention on the case because any kind of access to rights that she's had hasn't, you know, has actually been due to pressure and advocacy. It hasn't, you know, um, it certainly isn't a function of the prison system. Uh, you know, if from from her being denied hormones, initially the, the uh, prison doctor that she saw, um, you know, uh, kept, was just... Uh, incredibly rude and basically said to her, you know, um, why are you on hormones? And when when she explained, uh, you know, she was on hormones because she's a transgender woman, he said to her, well, I don't see women in a men's prison. And, uh, you know, so uh, a complaint was lodged and there was advocacy um, um, and, uh, you know, um, with um, together with uh, Magenta, the sex worker organisation in WA, um, that uh, organised a doctor who was willing to go out at her own cost um, to um, get CJ on hormones. And even just from a care perspective, for somebody who has been on hormones, you know, all her life, mm. to have that kind of discontinued, um, even just from that... Um, you know, uh, care perspective is incredibly harmful. Um, just, you know, um, and I think just even on, on that, on the real basics of her being able to have access to, um, you know, uh, the right deodorant, the right, her underwear, her clothing, um, having been searched by male officers and, uh, you know, or just the whole range of, um, I suppose, daily injustices that she's had to deal with um, basically because the prison system is is not equipped um, to to deal with um, trans trans people mm. yeah definitely um, and even when I guess even when we see like accommodations to trans people in prisons like these systems still operate and um, being a trans person person outside of your social networks out like isolate in prison even if it is in the prison or the agenda you identify with mm-hmm. is going to be enormously difficult um mm. to um so i'm thinking about um yeah i'm thinking about what solidarity has been received from different groups and organizations um 
Yeah, I suppose it's like you've talked about magenta um, on the grounds and... Yeah, look, I think that there there has been some, um, you know, and there was also some uh, uh, reach-outs to um, and... Um, which was really great. It was really fantastic. Um, um, Transgender Victoria as well. Um, and um, I think um, there's... Uh, CJ also said that she'd received letters in prison. We started a chuffed campaign just so that, you know, um, when she uh, when she was in solitary, she couldn't even get access to the canteen. But now at least she's in the prote- protective unit. Um, she can get access to some basics. Um, so... We um, started up a Shaft account, um, so just to um, get her access to um, things like a phone card and stamps and things so she can send letters. And um, she's really... Um, and and um, even for people who um, can't afford to donate, um, this you know, she, she loves getting the letters and mm-hmm. she was, like, incredibly appreciative um, of um, any correspondences. And she said that, um, that she received, um, you know, some correspondences from... Um, organisations in Canada as well and um, from people from um, all around Australia, which she just, you know, um, was incredibly grateful for and she wanted me to say um, thank you to everyone that's um, taken to the time to reach out and write. And you can imagine being um, isolated in prison, how um, how uh, wonderful it would be to, it is to, to actually receive um, those letters of support. So keep them coming. Um, they are um, reaching her and um, are, are very much appreciated. Yeah, I'll definitely um, provide a link to listeners um, to the, the Chuffed campaign that has the donations link and the address to send CJ letters. Um, yeah, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, and in Victoria, like pen pal letters are like banned at the moment in prisons, which is... Yeah, um, kind of another absurd oh. denial of rights here. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, it was out of a point and I've now mm. lost it. Um, but one of the things that we did um, do was um, we uh, had also looked at, you know, how we might be able to get her housed in a women's prison. Mm, yeah. And, um, you know, and, and also, like, you know, concerns um, about... Uh, the policies, I suppose, they have in um, the WA gender reassignment policy. Um, And, um, you know, you you kind of need to be legally registered as a a woman um, and the steps that it takes for that to happen and for somebody who is in prison, even though she's lived all her life as a woman, you know. um, So that's actually an avenue that we're um, exploring as well um, and uh, have been having conversations with uh, people on the uh, WA board, gender reassignment mm. board, to try and see if there's a way that we can um, at least, you know, make the years that CJ is looking like going to have to spend in prison um, at least kind of more bearable so that she does have access to being, you know, the, the, the programs that you do get when you are in um, general population of the prison um, and... You know, um, at least, you know, that's the idea that she's actually being housed in a, a maximum security prison is is just ridiculous. Like, she really is no threat to anyone, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, she's, um, since finding out about her diagnosis, she's been on medication, she's maintained an undetectable viral load for a really long time now, and she really is no risk to anybody. So, um, yeah, we were quite disappointed that we got, um, uh, we had the application to have her moved to a um, a medium or a, a minimum or even a medium security mm. um, prison uh, refused. Yeah, just, uh, yeah, it seems to go with, like, the extremeness of the whole case in terms of how the state has... Um, viewed CJ as a threat when mm-hmm. she is no threat at all. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, and and I was thinking about solidarity, um, and that like this is like a to me this is like a big feminist or women's issue. But I don't I don't know if there's been any solidarity from any sort of feminist sort of established feminist organisations. I'm wondering if there has been. Um, no, we haven't had any reach outs. Um, 
uh, officially. Um, but um, actually, it was... Um, I think when the issue did come to the media, I think it was, um, you know, uh, um, like a, a number of the um, trans orgs and HIV orgs did um, reach out in solidarity, which was, was really great. Um, and it was really, um, I think... Um, CJ was really grateful that, that there were so many people that saw the injustice of the case and did want to support her, um, in addition to the sex worker organisations as well, of course. Um, so, but yeah, as far as um, the women's organisations, no, not so far. Um, haven't had any um, reach outs um, as yet. But, um, yeah, look, I think um, we're, we're, we're still kind of remaining hopeful with the appeal. Um, and, if you know, um, hopefully uh, with the appeal, I mean, basically by the time the appeal gets up, she will have already served two years in jail. Mm. So, um, and if, if, you know, going by um, other kind of sentences, um, you know, uh, it, it, it's, it's the potential that if we are successful that she could get out with time served, you know, um, if, if, the, um, uh, if, if they are, you know, um, reasonable and using the other cases as a bit of a barometer for how much of a sentence she should be getting, you know. Um, even though, as I said, you know, sometimes it's a bit like, you know, talking about um, this case um, in those terms is in itself a bit strange because it's it's the whole the whole issue itself is just it shouldn't be in the courts in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, um, in terms of solidarity and support, so I suppose is the main avenue for solidarity and support letters and supporting. Um, Donations in terms of like court appeals are very costly. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, I think any of that would is is absolutely welcome. Um, we um, have um, fortunately um, have had um, I think the um, the um, uh, Simon Freitag, who um, was her lawyer that appeared for her, was so appalled at the sentence. Um, he was really. Um, quite appalled at the sentence as well and has um, been um, to, to offered to take on the um, appeal pro bono as well, but, um, you know, which is fantastic. Um, but as you know, there's also all those other associated costs too. So they are, the, the and not to mention the kind of emotional costs of it all. Um, so um, and actually, at the um, at the um, sentencing as well, a number of people did um, turn up um, and were in the um, uh, um, were there in the courtroom, which was really um, great um, to see um, people there. So, you know, people in um, WA or in Perth, you know, um, at uh, on the day, um, will as it uh, will keep people informed um, closer to the date of the um, appeal. Um, it, they, um, it's only just, um, they've only just recently accepted um, our um, application for appeal. And um, so that uh, will be, um, once we have a date for that, we'll um, uh, let, let people know. So um, for people who want to come um, in support, if you're in um, Perth. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Is there anything else um, in terms of that CJ would like to be known? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, um, look, you know, when um, so I am staying in pretty much like regular phone contact, like we're speaking to her like once or twice a week. Um, uh, and, you know, I think it, it is, um, she just wanted me to say that she is really um, grateful for the interest and support um, of her case. And, you know, it's, has been a really, um, um, you know, uh, distressing um, ordeal for her and to know that she has that support because, as you know, like, the media was so appalling and a lot of the things that, that were being said about her. Um, and she is just like, you know, CJ is 
the loveliest person that mm. you'll ever meet, you know, and they just, on the way that she was portrayed in the media was just horrific, you know. So I think um, that's why, you know, she's, when, when, you know, people do come out to court and support and do send her letters um, and, and, um, and she does know that she does have community support, it, um, it does mean a lot, um, given the, the, you know, the public perceptions that are out there about CJ. Yeah, yeah, that is so important. Um, I think that's all I have. Um, thanks for, thanks for joining me. Thanks for your time. No, thank you, thank you, and um, thanks for um, you know raising um, the issue of CJ, um, CJ's um, incarceration as well. I think um, you know as as time goes on, you know it's only going to become harder um, for CJ. Mm. So it's really great that. Um, kind of continually raise um the issues um yeah yeah unfortunately like yeah it is she's facing years in prison and it like is a long haul to get through that and she needs all, su- all the support she can get from everyone absolutely absolutely and i think that's the thing as well like because a lot of the times with attention spans um people can often forget things when they're not in the public eye so I think it's, it's it's going to be, as time goes on, I think it's just going to get even harder. And um, so, yeah, she needs all the support um, that, that, that uh, you know, um, and even more so. Yeah, definitely. Um, thanks, Jules. Okay, thanks very much. Bye. Okay, great talking to you. Yeah, great talking to you. And, yes, you were just, you're listening to Karina, and that was an interview we have Jules Kim of Scarlet Alliance. Um, she is the CEO of Scarlet Alliance, and we're talk, uh, talking about CJ Palmer and the injustice with that case there. Um, we're reaching the end of our show now. You can contact Queenia at, at gmail.com. Um, you can also check out our Facebook page, Queenia, and hopefully we're going to be more active. We'll just start a Twitter account, Queenia, as well. Um, so get in contact with us if you'd like, provide, provide us feedback or anything like that. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.